You are listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Welcome to Archaeology and L Podcast. For those of you new to our podcast, Archaeology and L is a monthly talk held upstairs at the Red Deer Pub at Pitt Street in Sheffield, provided by Archaeology in the City, an outreach program from the University of Sheffield's Archaeology Department. This month we are presenting Real Horsepower with guest speaker Eleanor Taylor, the history and current practice of real horsepower in the logging and agricultural industries. Also, stay tuned for an after-talk discussion with Chrissy and Courtney, members of Archaeology in the City. Please view the show notes for more information about our podcast and the guest speaker. Content warning. Listener discretion is advised, as there is adult language and mild graphic description of animal slaughter and the poor condition of horses during auction is mentioned in the following discussion. Thank you. Um, as you just heard, I am a horse farmer from Devon. Um, so this is probably what you imagine when you imagine horse farming, a tiny old man with a walking plough and two extremely large horses. Um, that is exactly what I do, in fact. I am a tiny old man with a plough. It's brilliant. Um, so obviously, in our recent history, we we're extremely reliant on horses for our transport, farming, mining, and forestry work. Um, in the 18th century, there are approximately 300,000 horses working in London alone. Um, surprisingly, there are actually just as many horses in the country now as there were uh, in those times. So horses were used in agriculture. Um, horses were used in agriculture and we developed machinery basically to get them to do pretty much anything that we wanted them to do. So they'd be used for ploughing and then they'd break up the land with harrows, seed the land with seed drills, which is basically like a rotating um, bin with little like shoots that drop the seed into the land and then they'd chain harrow the land to put the seed in. Um, people would plough like this, they'd walk 11 miles in a day and only plough one acre. Before the 18th century we actually used oxen more regularly than horses. Horses are quite a recent incoming into agriculture. Uh, after the horses we started using steam power and um, before they motorised it we actually had to use horses to drag the steam engines to the fields <laughs> to use them to work. Um, and then obviously they motorised them and that's when people started leaving the countryside and there was a lot of loss of jobs in, in agriculture. Um, and they quite regularly, which I think is a bit sad, named the machinery after the horses that they'd replaced and they'd keep them in the stable blocks and call them the same name. Um, when people think of working horses, they usually think of ginormous shire horses. Um, our native ponies, which only stand about this high at the shoulder, were actually some of our most important workers. Uh, for example, the pit ponies. These ponies were sometimes not actually ever come up and see see the sunlight, they would actually be bred in the pits, work in the pits and die in the pits. Um, and these horses pound for pound are actually stronger than the big heavy horses that you see are being used today. As you can see in America they still use the mini ponies and they have mini pony pulling contests. Um, these two ponies at, the, at this particular point are supposed to be pulling around 50 stone. So those two ponies are pulling 50 stone in that photo. So. You can imagine the power that they have. Um, horses were also used in agriculture. Um, 
this was actually one of the harshest forms of work and it wasn't uncommon for the horses if they weren't pulling hard enough to light a fire underneath them so that they would pull and pull the timber out and as you can see they can pull quite a lot of weight especially on a sledge with runners or on wheels. Um, so our, our original Shire horses look something a bit like this, um, probably not what you see nowadays. Nowadays the modern Shire has all white legs and they're a lot skinnier and a bit crap to be honest. This is the modern Shire, so as you can see they're a lot thinner, they've got not much space for the heart and lungs, which is why they aren't actually very good as working animals anymore. Um, most people that still work horses actually turn to the European horses, so use things like uh, the Brabant, the Ardennes and things like that, Percheron, things like that. Uh, we actually mainly use, we mainly use uh, the English gypsy cobs because they're still bred for work. Um, they still pull the wagons around and they're still from working lines. Uh, we actually had a Suffolk punch horse come to us for breaking in. Um, it's one of the, the rarest breeds of working horse, although there's actually hundreds of thousands of them in America, but the British Suffolk Society won't accept them as Suffolk punches. Don't know why. But these horses are now bred so hyped up that you, you can't actually get them to do any work because they just want to run everywhere. We had one that we hitched into a cart and it jumped over four fences with a cart hitched on the back. So uh, European horses, they're much better. Um, this is an Arden working in forestry. And their horses are actually still quite in demand in forestry work. It doesn't sound like a thing, but it is. Um, we work for the Duchy, pulling timber for the Prince of Wales. We also work for large timber companies such as Prine Ricketts um, and other timber yards. The horses are used because they do much less damage to the ground and the root systems of the forest than uh, tractor wood. Obviously with a tractor you have to put in a big thick track into the woodland. If you're just thinning out a forest where you're kind of cutting out the bad trees to allow the good trees to grow up for um, saw logs, then horses are really the best thing for that because you can get them into little spaces, pull them out in little spaces and they can really pull quite a lot of weight. Uh, this is two horses these are actually our two, well, two of our horses. We've got 24 at the moment. Um, showing how you can reverse the log with a horse as well. So they can spin the logs on the spot and reverse them out as well as, well, basically they've got a bar at the back here, which would normally, they pull it forward with. But if they are walking the other way, then it touches the log and pushes it along in front of them instead. So yeah, they can get into really narrow spots and pull out a lot of timber. Um, that's tractor damage in woodland, which is a nightmare. Uh, this is a horse pulling uh, four times his own body weight with the use of a logging arch. Uh, the horses on the flat can pull their own body weight. If they're going downhill, it's twice their body weight. When you imagine a horse with a neck like that, they pull out quite a lot of weight. So our main logging mare will pull out between 30 and 50 tons of timber in a day, which actually makes her cheaper than taking in a tractor. Um, and we were actually used a lot, for, uh, a lot for ecologically important sites and also for sites of archaeological interest. Um, because we can avoid things that a tractor can't. So why use horses in farming? Global warming. It's bad. Everyone knows about it. At the moment we have a system whereby to produce one calorie of food we use eight calories of fossil fuel, uh, which obviously isn't sustainable and is pretty terrifying. Um, we also have food imports that are so drastic that in London there's actually only two days food supply. So if our imports are cut off then everyone is going to be really hungry. So it's a disaster. Um, so basically there's a lot of movement into more local food and like artisan food and I'm sure you know all about that sort of stuff like farmers markets and things like that. But the picture of modern agriculture is not a particularly healthy one. At the moment um, there's a lot of monoculture which means that they're only growing a single crop. Um, if there's no crop rotation it depletes the, the soil which means they have to add fertilizers and 
other poisons to the land to stop pests. Uh, we're also losing a vast majority of our wildlife. Uh, something like 99% of farmland birds have been lost in the last 30 years. So if you think things like that, it's not particularly fantastic. Also, a modern tractor like this will cost you £100,000. I don't know about you, but I don't have that going spare. <laughs> if I wanted to get into agriculture, I could buy a cob for £50 or a tractor for £100,000. Each hour that you work a tractor, it loses a value of between £100 and £1,000. Um, until obviously it's kind of at a level. Um, whereas when you're working a horse, it actually increases in value and obviously it can reproduce, which a tractor can't, which makes it much more sustainable. Uh, this is my friends Ed and Anne Katrin. They live just down the road from our farm and they farm with two native ponies, two Dartmoor ponies. They're about this big. Uh, they can't pull very much, but we don't tell them that. Um, <laughs> and they produce food for 80 families on two acres using two horses and three people. So obviously you can see how it becomes economical then to use horses as well in farming because people will pay more for things that they think are artisan and all that stuff. But it's cheaper than running a tractor because they just eat grass. So it's great. Um, this is two of our horses ploughing. That's Primrose and this is Billy. So this is Primrose's collar. So you get an idea of the size of the pair of them. Primrose weighs just short of a ton. Um, and at the moment she's due to foal. So I've been up every night until 3 a.m. watching her eat hay and not foal for the last two weeks, <laughs> so I'm quite tired. <laughs> um, we've also made a lot of kind of modern advances. Um, this is a modern Amish plough. Um, the Amish um, never stopped farming with horses, so they've created a lot more better machinery than we had in Britain. We import all of our stuff from America, all the Amish harness, Amish machinery. They even have a thing where you can put a horse on a treadmill and it generates electric for your house. We use this sort of stuff, and you can sit on that plough, which is great. So with a plough like that, you can hitch um, four, six horses on the front of there, and then you can plough between four and ten acres a day. So it's much more efficient than the old walking ploughs, and you don't have to walk 11 miles. You can just sit on your ass and eat donuts. So it's much better. They also have the technology now where we can actually do things that conventional tractors would do in farming. So we can bale hay, um, exclusively using horses. This is called an I&J hitch cart, and the turning of the wheels uh, creates ground drive which will give you 340 RPM, and you can run a conventional tractor baler behind horses just at walking speed. So we are planning, well, we already have the equipment to do this, but we'll be the only working horse farm in the country that is baling and making all their own horse feed and all their own hay. And if you think you make 100 bales of hay for each acre of ground that you have um, hay growing on, and horsey people will spend £5 a bale on those little bales of hay. So if you're not even running a tractor and you're just doing it with horses, you make a mint. It's brilliant. So farm life. This is my dog, Slug Mole. That's a chicken that shouldn't have been in my house. <laughs> yeah, so I'll just tell you a little bit about what we do. Uh, this is one of our offices. and uh, We do a lot of logging, as I said, farming, and also bracken rolling. So bracken rolling is going out with a barrel with a cutting blade on it here. And that's clearing things like paths, and also for shoots. So we go to a lot of posh places and roll all the bracken down so that they can see where the pheasants are and blow them to pieces. So that's going into a bracken site and we can take down six foot of bracken over three acres a day, um, which would basically be impenetrable, but the horses all just walk straight through it and take with them this um, rotating blade and it cuts it all to pieces, bruises it, and then the next year it doesn't even come back up. Um, and then if you start grazing sheep on it, you never have to do it again. So we're kind of putting ourselves out of business a little bit. Uh, this is another of our offices. Um, this is a view above, I think it's Loch Lomond, where we went up to do some logging work, pulling some timber, 
charging about £300 a day. Um, this is a, a piece of technology that we actually invented ourselves in order to break in runaway horses. That's Slugmar, she has a stick that's tied to the back of the horses. And uh, yeah, it saved me a lot of walking, so that was great. So basically we created this system to work with runaway horses, that black and white horse that's in harness in that cage. Um, we've been trying to break her for about 11 months and we weren't having any luck. Um, and the old books that you look into for information, because there's not a lot of modern information on how to do these things, say, tie her legs together and hit her with a stick. So we basically thought, we might not do that. It's a bit weird. Um, so we created this. Um, it's got, well, you can see in the video, it's got a, a piece in the middle that holds the horse in the place. And then she's out on a pole and she's in like a fake carriage so that she gets used to the feeling of it being all around her. And basically she can just run away. But she doesn't go anywhere. And horses will actually only run for a quarter of a mile before they stop and think, actually, I'm fine. So that was probably quite silly of me. And now I'm just going to stand here in this carriage and be fine about it. And now she's one of our best working animals and she works with all the rest of the team. Um, so the sort of work that we do when we take people uh, for day courses and week courses and breaking other people's horses, we do a lot of chain harrowing to knock the muck into the ground. Um, horses are great. They also produce their own fertilizer, which is improving your farmland. Brilliant. Yeah, so that's chain harrowing with a mare and her foal. Um, the foals get tied on the side just to see everything, get used to everything. And then when they're older, it's much easier to break them in because they've already done everything as far as they're concerned, apart from the actual pulling. Plowing. We do a lot of carriage driving. We break in a lot of other people's horses for carriage driving. So if you wanted to come and have a go, you get used to driving a pair and a single, doing chain harrowing and plowing. This is a team of six driving. So I don't know if any of you have ever ridden before, but you usually have two reins in your hands. In this particular situation, you have 18 uh, between all your different fingers <laughs> to try and work out how to use. Uh, the first time I did that, I drove it straight into a fence. <laughs> so that was, that was really good, but you can come and have a go at that if you want to. On, um, the condition of horses in our country at the moment um, is not particularly good. This mare I bought at a market for £15. Uh, she was going for meat. Um, and I would strongly encourage everyone to eat horse meat because at the moment the horses are exported live to Europe to be killed or they're basically just left out in fields to rot. If they have a value as a meat animal, then they get treated properly. You never really hear of people starving a pig to death, do you? Because they just feed it and then, yeah. So I bought this mare for, for £15, like I said, and then two weeks later, she had a foal. So that was all going to go live to Europe to uh, be slaughtered. Her name is Truffle, and that is Mouse. She is like the pride of my life. <laughs> my boyfriend hates her. He's like, she's too small to do anything. I'm like, no, she's beautiful. <laughs> there she is again, looking cute. Uh, does anyone have any questions? I can sort of see in forests and going through the bracken fields how it would be like viable to use a like yeah. but in terms of the economic value making hay bales and harvesting things surely buying a John Deere is probably a bit better like also animals produce greenhouse gases yeah they do but not on the scale of a tractor obviously but like you buy a tractor you got it done in a day in terms of in terms of 10, 10 days yeah, you of can. course horse labour yeah, yeah. done in a day. Yeah, you can, but the idea is is to bring people back into agriculture. Um, most of the horses that we break and sell go to like community gardens and stuff, where people are coming together to work on the land and to grow their own organic food. 
And it kind of just fits into that cycle that if they can produce their own working animals, they don't have to have a huge outlay from the beginning, and they do work in the system. You don't have to bring in fuel. You don't have to bring in an engineer. Um, they just graze the ground. They fertilize the ground, and they work the ground. Then they pay for themselves. So it's n it's never meant to be viable for like. It's not meant to be agricultural huge agriculture. Consistent. But in America, there's actually two hundred thousand working horse farmers, whereas in this country, there's only five. Um, so. Out there, it is considered to be viable, but out there, they've got huge farms, and what they would do is hitch on 50 horses and get them pulling a combine harvester. Um, so, but then there's still like human labour that you've got to pay for. Yeah, there is, but I think I think that's a positive, and that's part of the yeah, part of what we're going for is bringing more people into agriculture and having more of an interest in agriculture. Because you speak to kids now, and they have no idea. They're like, oh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, if you see those like Jamie Oliver <laughs> programs where they're like, "Oh, tomatoes come from cows," it's like, no. Apart from straight up capitalism, it doesn't. Yeah, it's all right. I mean, we we make a good living. We've just yeah. spent two hundred and eleven thousand pounds buying another farm. Put it that way. <laughs> I mean, um, I feel like we should clarify. I mean, like my my family in Canada were horse farmers until like. I mean, I've, I've seen horse farming competitions. And yeah, in America and Canada, they're huge. Dark difference between what happens in the states and the rest of North America. I mean, it's good. It's great that, uh, that this is going to sound very Canadian, um, <laughs> but bear with me. Is that like like I think it's good that it's continuing on because the thing in Canada is that like I know people that have tried their hand at horse logging. Um, tractors don't die to the cold, and tractors don't get killed by bears. That's true. Wolves. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry. like. It's just, it, like I mean, it, I, I'm glad that it like it's continuing on, um, but, but but machines don't die. No, they don't. And, and especially as as a farmer too, like uh, you get attached to your animals. You know, it's, it's still your it's, it's still your labor, but it's still it's still a living animal. It's a, a lot less tragic when you have to go buy another John Deere versus it's a lot more expensive though. <laughs> horse, you know what I mean? But it's it's I'm like I don't, I don't really know what my question is, but like it's. I'm glad that it's continuing here, uh, although we use totally different breeds of horses, but it's... No, they've actually started importing a lot of horses, um, the American Belgian and stuff like that, back into the UK because they were bred from the British horses, but they've kept the working lines. Yeah, Whereas here they're like, let's, <laughs> let's show them, and they're all <laughs> mental. Um, to be clear then, you know, the carbon footprint of plowing one acre yeah. is less for the horse yeah. than it is the tractor. Yes. So they are a lower carbon. Much lower. I think it's yeah, about... So it's just time and... So in, on that basis, why can't we replace mass agriculture with horses rather than... I mean, you could. I'm not saying that we should do that because I, I don't think people would take to that very kindly. Um, why not? Well, it's kind of like you ask people to go out and pick vegetables and the only people that want to do it are people that don't want to work, usually. It's, it's kind of below minimum wage work. It's usually done by gangs of usually Eastern European people because the British people don't want to work in agriculture for a large part. We find it very difficult to get an apprentice. You know, we offer apprenticeships. You can come and work with us. We'll pay you. You can work with the horses on the farm, and we can't give it away half the time. So, but The human labour cost is not going to be extortionate as well compared to being on a tractor. Well, because you're going to take 10 days to do what the tractor can do in a day, and that's one person on a tractor compared to one person. One person with a horse, yeah, but you yeah. think about the fuel inputs. Those tractors use something like eight gallons of fuel every 10 minutes. So is, is that comparable to 
10 days of human labor though. Well, we're doing it in, well, in ter- no, 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 it's fine. <laughs> we're doing it in terms of being self-sufficient. Um, we don't have to bring things in from the outside and we just use our own labor and that of apprentices. Um, and obviously it doesn't cost us anything to do that. So it's yeah. economical for us to so run. You've got the horses and the infrastructure. Yeah, it, sort of, yeah. yeah we can run a 35 acre farm with horses, no worries. It's really interesting that you just come back from China, and what I expected there was like mass industrialization of agriculture, much of the way you've seen happen in, say, East Anglia or somewhere like that. Yeah. It's actually the opposite. They're very into sort of patchwork, yeah. smallholdings, family like farms. Millions of people yeah. working the land, but replicating for units, and massive variegation in different crops which have grown side by side. And you do see animals because the spaces are very small and the fields are very small. They don't often work with animals or something like that. Yeah. Um, and I suppose the sort of parallel is as soon as we move to these large agro businesses with huge fields and centralised concerns, I suppose the case of machinery and management becomes ever more important that you've got a decentralised model. Yeah. Of lots of tessellations or smallholdings, then I suppose the case for horses becomes ever more yeah. important. But how, how could you, we couldn't. I won't say couldn't, but I mean, it'd be lovely to think of reversing those processes. I don't think anyone in the agro-business has benefited from them much, but consumers in terms of what we actually eat, yeah. or the people in terms of trying to sustain their own communities. How, how would you start to sort of lever against that, because they're huge forces? Well, it's already, we're already seeing a huge upturn in the number of people that are interested in buying working animals. Um, last year we sold, I think it was 16 working horses um, to different community groups. And um, basically, people are certain groups of people are starting to see um, a different way of doing it in terms of making it sustainable as a priority rather than as a monetary priority, um, and making it kind of like a community and labour-intensive thing that people can get together and produce good food. Um, it is on the upturn. Um, I think all we can do is really kind of spread the word and encourage people to come and get involved and. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, because in a, in a similar kind of sense, and I think within communities, even in communities that are kind of city-based, I know, like, from London anyway, central London, a lot of the kind of estates, they have um, kind of little uh, little gardens that people can rent out. So there is, there is an interest in it, especially yeah. for people being able to grow their own things. It's the availability of land yeah. and the kind of, yeah, it's access, it's access to this kind of lifestyle. But I think perhaps if you did kind of corner it up in smaller communities where like if, if you had one animal, like you said, 80 families being fed off one Two horses, horse, yeah. Two horses, that being divided, if everybody put in to look after that horse would be minimal, yeah. minimal cost. And minimal work. And I'm not saying that, you know, in central London you're going to be able to get a horse plow through, like, whatever, but I think there is, there is an interest, but it, it's being able to... It's the accessibility, yeah. Yeah, we've, we're actually working with a group at the moment that are setting up a community garden in the middle of Birmingham um, with horses um, to produce food for local people. And so it is kind of, you know, on the upturn. Um, and we're getting a lot more work as well in, in the farming and the agricultural stuff. And there's always like the country shows that you go to and you get so much interest. People are like overwhelmingly want to come and talk to you and 
poke the horses in the eyes and all that stuff. I was say, from sort of that sort of perspective, what you're describing, integrating uh, sort of animal produce sort of, as a community level, it's kind of quite easy to try and, well, not easy in that sense, but implicate that into inner city communities, like in places like Birmingham and central London and things. But I think uh, there's certain problems I feel in places like where I'm from in central Sussex and places like this, where there's, there's a massive divide within the very wealthy and the very poor. Mm. And it's not as if these people aren't surrounded by animals and things because they're on their doorstep and things like this. But for, for years and years and years, I remember when I was in primary school, I think there's always been initiatives to try and interfere this sort of stuff. And people are never going to get that, unfortunately. Then, to be, which to is, be perfectly yeah. honest, like, what I'm talking about is council states in central London. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying, no. Yeah, it, yeah, it, I, I, I understand that there, there is a kind of like education yeah. area to it. But I don't think the interest is any different. No, I don't think it's. I, I, would, I, would, I don't think it's. I don't think it's the interest thing. It's the, it's the, the translation of that material at the same time as well as the fact is that it's it's very hard where that point of view is coming from because it's in the in the southeast of England. Um, there's very much the fact that you're sitting on the doorstep of Sussex. If you go to places like Brighton, regardless, even if you're in a very big metropolitan city, there's a huge rich poor divide. Even though you're sitting on the, the doorstep of a national park. And you can literally walk into the, the South Downs and you're there. And unfortunately, that information is just not being translated. It's always attempted, it's for years they've been trying to implement this and trying to get to understand. But there's no ownership over. Land Absolutely. Land. And the thing is, it's not being translated. It's not being implemented and not carried on, which is a real shame because there's so much promise for some stuff like this. Absolutely. I actually have a horsey question. In historic photographs of the earlier Shire breed, I was just. Because my nana had horses. Did it have its winter coat on, or were they really just really fuzzy once upon a time? They're really fuzzy. They were really fuzzy, okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, that's it's probably his winter coat. Uh, this is the Dean, who's um, an extremely famous uh, breeding shire. He was like one of the champion horses in the UK. Uh, yeah, he does look fuzzy. Okay, yeah. um, so my second question was, when you said that they tend to show horses in the UK and working horses in Europe, yeah. is it the same as dogs, where there is something like a breed standard, like they have for pups, that shapes the way horse lines are... Yeah, right? basically, if you go on to the next photo... Um, yeah, they, they, they have the breed standard. So the Shire horse now is supposed to have four white legs, like this one. Um, it's supposed to be massively, hugely tall for no reason. You, you couldn't even get a harness on it if you wanted to. Some of these things are like 19, 20 hands. We had one recently that was 18, three to break. And I had to stand on a gate to put a bridle on its head. Um, but they also get the same kind of problems that you get with pedigree dogs. For example, the Shire has a big problem with shivers, uh, which is basically where they have a poor connection in the spine to the back legs and they do a really weird walk like a duck with their back legs and they can't straighten them properly and they go out to the sides and like in Alsatians yeah yeah um so yeah they do have the breed standard and there is most of the working breeds that are in this country now are just used for showing um uh, the Shire horse's original um, lines were from the, it was called the English Black Horse, um, and they were bred to be weight carrying for the army um, and for people in armour and things like that, and then they were moved into the farming. Um, you still pull artillery and stuff, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, the British uh, English Black Horse, yeah, they would have been about 16, 17 hands, but square. <laughs> you know. And were they paces? Uh, paces are a different thing. Paces of. <laughs> so, uh, paces are still around today, but they're used mainly for racing. Um, but they have a totally different set of strides to the normal working horses. Um, kind of, kind of on the, um, in terms of the type of show horses versus work horses. I mean, I'm not familiar. I'm not, I'm not a horse person, but I'm also not a UK horse person. Like, yeah, yeah. The work horses back home are like Clydesdales. That's your choice. Yeah. Um, it, when we talk about like the cost of these things, if you're talking about a couple horses per team, yeah, uh, I don't know what the costs are here. I mean, if you're talking like a trained, like, a, like a like a proven horse, yeah, back home, it's gonna cost you like twenty five thousand pounds. So yeah, I don't see how a team of horses is any cheaper than. A that won't die. Uh, basically, in the yeah. UK, the horse market has completely fallen out of its own ass, and horses <laughs> are not worth anything. Um, yeah. You can go to the markets and you can pick up. Sometimes they will send through a group of animals and they'll sell for a pound. Um, and because they have such a low value, they're treated as an animal that has such a low value. Like you go to these auctions, these horses have got like broken feet, their feet are bleeding, their heads are bleeding. We had one dealer who came up to us who was like, oh yeah, I was trying to break this horse for working, but the horse got tangled up in the harness and the harness was more expensive than the horse, so we just slit its throat. And it's like, fab. Yes, yeah. Broken? No, wild. But then it's, it's, to break it in is quite labor intensive, but people can do it themselves, so yeah. We sell our working animals for around £2,000, um, but they're cobs. The shires on their own, although they're not suitable for working, they're about £3,000 because they're worth something as a show animal still. Um, their prices haven't really fallen as much right, as... But I suppose that's advantageous for what we're getting at here, that compared to, like, uh, I mean, I'm familiar with North America, where yeah. the horse is far more, even by a sports car, yeah. before you can buy a crap horse. Yeah. No, in England, honestly. So. We went to the Dartmoor Run, which is our local, um, where they take them all off the moor, and we bought four horses for £10. Um, I wanted to buy a rubbish horse, so you can take my weight. Yeah. So I get to, say, ride two miles to work and back every day. I don't think this is it. <laughs> Probably, if, if it was broken in just for riding, it would be about £200. You can't replace your diesel. <laughs> at, that, at, that, at that price, you could buy a new horse. Exactly. You don't have to insure it, do you? <laughs> and you can't drink drive on a horse. Can't you? No. no. They can... Um, they can... The horse can take <laughs> Yeah. No, no, no. You can get drunk and ride one, and they can't do anything about it. Yeah, so you can yeah, drink yeah. drive on a horse. Yeah, no, I mean, you can't be done for drink driving on a horse. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Yeah. So really, the pub trade should be investing yeah. on the horses. And for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, and the horse will take you home as well. If you're totally pissed out your skull, yeah. it'll be like, oh, I'm going home, going to eat my hay. And there was a guy that used to get drunk and then lost his license and drove a, drove a little mini John Deere in, and he used to get lost all the time. <laughs> so now I don't want to do in the past and then, um, and one of the things we look at is uh, yeah, working versus pleasure animals and 
What kind of uh, we have our main working stallion that you can see in the picture of the log being reversed. No, no, it's fine. That one. Our main working stallion, Remco. Um, he is a European Brabant, which is from Belgium, and they breed them so that they work until they're about 10 years old, and then their meat goes tender, and then they kill them and eat them. He's dual purpose. And unfortunately, he's, he's now nine years old and he's retired because he has chronic arthritis in one leg. Um, but he's tender. Sorry? How old is he when you can start working in? A normal sized horse, you would start working at three or four years old um, because he's a stallion. I don't know if that means anything to anyone, but it's basically like trying to work with a bull. Um, He's a stallion. He weighs just upwards of a ton and a half. Um, so he started work at 18 months because it was the only way that you were going to get him young enough where he still hadn't realised that he was bigger than you. I'm not a country boy at all. You're not suggesting that this is commercially viable for... Like, I'm not saying I want to, to set it out across the world and it's going to save everyone, no. Because... Okay, even for small holdings, though, could you not get like a sit on? Can I just basically like a <laughs> lawnmower and just drag like a? You can, but it depends whether you want to do it without using fossil fuels. But that that would like, but they produce like a bit of carbon monoxide. Much less. And grass. In terms of yeah, on, yeah. on a sit down yes, much, much lawnmower, yeah, I could probably plow a couple of fields in a day. They could do what. How many acres are you talking? I suppose, I suppose if it's smallholding and labour isn't a cost, then fine, it's viable. Yes. But if yeah. labour is a cost, then it's really good. Well, they do do it in the States. It's just that they do it on a much bigger scale. They use much bigger teams. They use much bigger machinery. I mean, especially in the UK, labour is the biggest cost of anything in any industry. Yeah. Yeah. Labour's always going to be your main concern. Yeah. Well, this this is in terms of doing it in a sustainable way, so it's not bringing possible. No, you're, you're right. It would be easier to do it with. No, it's not. No. <laughs> okay, oh, yeah. yeah. So but that's it, that's it. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah. Fine. Yeah. If we can yeah. sort out that thing, yeah. Until that happens. Come in as well, just in terms of when you, as a, like, I'm not a farming person, I volunteered on farms, um, probably for the same reasons that you do what you do, and yeah. I think it's sustainable and it's a, a healthy part of life to know where your food comes and be involved in its production. Um, so rather than boiling things down completely to, like, the cost, or just just going well, it costs so much to run the fuel. If you if you do want to do it as a small business option, you're paying the people rather than paying the petrol browser, mm. and then they will go and spend the money, and then they will go and buy things, and then mm -hmm. things will carry along that way. So don't consider perhaps rather than considering the cost of paying humans as analogous to the cost of spending on fuel, you're actually making people's lives better rather than supporting a petrol company. Um, so, you know, you are contributing more to your local community by employing staff, but horses are cool rather than economic debates. <laughs> horses. I, was, I don't want to ask the scary 
question, but I am curious, like, do you do the full life cycle of the working horse and also do we eat them? horse meat? Yeah. Um, I have to say the only meat that I've eaten in the last 20 years was horse meat. Oh, that's cool. um, I poisoned you with a piece of ham once. Courtney did do that. I did do that. Yeah. Um, we do... Um, some of our horses, if they don't make the grade and they're dangerous to work with, will go into the food chain. So that does happen. We had a Suffolk punch. Um, the guy had kept it till it was seven years old. And what he'd done was he'd stood up on, because this horse was quite aggressive, it would go for you with its front legs, it would go for you with its teeth. What he did was he decided to stand up on top of a load of bales of hay, trap the horse between it and drop harness on it from a great height to see if that worked. Didn't work. Um, and that horse came to us to be broken in. And we had it for 12 weeks. You couldn't even lead it across a field. And so he went into the food chain. Um, but yeah, they do, they do follow the full cycle. But our working horses that we keep for their lifetimes are retired in our fields. I have one that's 28 years old. Um, so, yeah. I was just really curious, because I know that, uh, I, I mean, I'm vegetarian, but I think if you eat the cow, you should eat the horse. Because yeah, it's the yeah, same it's thing. Um, yeah. So, I don't listen. Are there, like, horse <laughs> service you, or do you have to send it abroad? We take them to Somerset. There is one remaining horse abattoir working in the southwest of the country. Um, it's called Potter's. And it is targeted so much by people that think that eating horses is like savagery and everything else. But they process about 300 horses a week in the, in the abattoir down there. So just, just a question of, of curiosity, given, given the amount of time that, like I've, I've uh, like no problem with eating horses, I mean I've never had horse, but it doesn't faze me at all, but the, uh, I have no doubt, but it, like I've, I've, no, I've no problem with, with like that practice at all, I think it's good, especially like, I mean, you're, getting the full extent out of the animal, especially if it's, it's come to the end of its usefulness in terms of agriculture. Um, but, like, is it a, that big of a deal in the, in the sense that we're talking working horses here that have an actual purpose, as opposed to they're not bred just for food. They're doing things. What stops me from breeding 700 chickens in a hundredth the time that it takes to do that, considering that, like, a lot of the Western world doesn't horse. So a lot of horse goes to things like dog food, etc. I could That's breed. I could. I I, well, yeah, but th that notwithstanding, not that notwithstanding, I could breed enough chickens to fill this entire pub in two months. Yeah, but you can plow a field with chickens. But I don't need to because I could then grow another crop of chickens and chickens and chickens and fill that same niche. But you can't grow vegetables like, with chickens. But you can't plow a field with a horse that doesn't listen to you. No, you so, can't, but you get one that does. And wait seven years to find out if it does? No, no, no. You can, you can buy them at the age of four in this country for about yeah. 100 quid. Well, I'm just saying like, it's, it's kind of a side note that the fact that you can use it as a meat source is... Yes, I'm not saying note. that is their sole purpose. Oh, no, no, I, I, I think know. that was literally a question posed. That wasn't yeah. like, what would be your main... No, no, I know, I, I appreciate... I, I appreciate... I don't know what's happening. Steep point, because that entire niche in agriculture can be sufficed with but, no, literally like, anything else. But that's like saying, oh, but a tractor won't die. Yeah, but you can't eat a tractor when it breaks down. You know, so... It just they can only eat a horse once. Also, <laughs> like, but a horse makes more horses. Hello, welcome to the 
it's not the Tuesday lunch lectures, it is the Archaeology and Ale pub talk session run by Archaeology in the City and recorded upstairs at the Red Deer pub in Sheffield. And Courtney has invited her friend to come and talk about her work as a horse farmer and Courtney's just going to tell us a little bit about her friend's work and why she thinks it's relevant to archaeology. Hi, um, yeah, no, I invite my friend up to talk because I've been watching her business grow over the past uh, few years and it's been incredible to watch uh, Ellie grow her business from two horses to now I think she's got about 27 horses and it's just amazing to see someone follow, I mean from an archaeological perspective, follow traditional farming methods which I find interesting anyway and she's reverting back to some uh, old horse bloodlines which aren't now part of the like pedigree I don't know if you actually call them pedigree horses but as in it's not part of the show horses that um, are brought to shows every day it's like the original breeds of horses which are the normally kind of stocky and ugly but they're suitable for the job so square yeah square <laughs> so it's amazing to see like these horses being brought back into their own uh, and really appreciate for what they can do and I mean again from a heritage perspective she's helping sites not get crushed by tractors and plows which I mean when you're excavating to have a site completely ruined by a plough it's a nightmare whereas if you're having horses coming rather than the tractors crushing the ground and everything it's amazing to have that side uh, preservation wise so it's interesting from that perspective but also from the perspective of it's just fascinating to watch such a environmentally friendly and also human friendly because it's really promoting community and jobs for people rather than machines um, it's just amazing to see it all develop and it was just great to have her up here and explain in a big nutshell uh, how it all started, where she got the ideas from, the history of it, and also now where it is today and where she's gone with it. So, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Yeah, no, I think it was great. I think I wish I had pre prepared a list of questions, including things like what kind of footmarks do they leave behind, what kind of scuff marks do they leave behind, and what kind of skeletal pathologies do they have. But And also, how do we go and volunteer? Because I want to go and oh work God, for her no, now. Right. Yes, but that was awesome. So thank you for inviting her, and thank you for letting me record the talk. Fantastic, and hopefully we'll see you all next month. presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com.